Welcome to the podcast entitled Reducing Cardiovascular Risk, Current Approaches to Clinical Decision-Making in the Management of Dyslipidemia. This podcast was produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by an educational grant from Merck. The content for this podcast was adapted from an interview with Joseph Sassine that was recorded on December 7, 2011, during the 46th ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting and Exhibition in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Sassine is Professor of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine and Vice Chair of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Center in Aurora, Colorado. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sassine. Thank you for having me. I understand that new cholesterol treatment guidelines are scheduled to be released in 2012. What do you think these guidelines will say that is different from what is currently recommended? I think that what we probably will see is stronger endorsement for some of the optional goals that are recommended in our current guidelines, particularly for patients that are considered very high risk, such as those that already have established atherosclerotic disease, whether it's heart attack, history, or ischemic stroke, or peripheral arterial disease. Currently, we have recommended more aggressive approaches for them as options, and I think we might see more endorsement of that as the standard. I think the other thing we might see in newer guidelines, hoping that they actually really are released in 2012, is that currently we have this non-HDL target as a secondary target, which is secondary after the primary target of LDL lowering. I think we might see that non-HDL move up higher in the order where it might be a co-target along with LDL cholesterol. That one we might just have to wait and see a little bit further. But I think those are probably optional targets being endorsed as a standard target, and perhaps more attention to non-HDL are probably the two biggest things. Based on the available data, do you feel that all patients with diabetes should be treated with a statin-type drug? That's a great question, because what we know about patients with diabetes is that they absolutely have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, not just CHD, but also even stroke. So what we have available is a lot of information in that population evaluating statin-based therapy, and it seems pretty consistent that that population, those with diabetes, really do receive benefits from statin-based therapy. If you read guidelines from the ADA, which are updated every single year, they actually recommend statin-based therapy regardless of baseline LDL value because there are data available looking at a range of baseline LDLs in patients with diabetes. If they're low, medium, or high, they still benefit from statin-based therapy. So my answer is, unless there's an absolute contraindication, I think that every patient with type 2 diabetes should be considered for statin-based therapy. The things that would preclude me from recommending statin therapy is a woman of childbearing potential, since I might not want to implement a statin therapy in somebody who might potentially become pregnant. Those who are younger than the age of 40, I may rethink because they may be too young at that point to actually receive some of the benefits. And those with type 1 diabetes, assuming that they get to the age 40 and up, I would apply the same standards of, I would recommend statin-based therapy. But under that age, I would think twice. In June of 2011, the FDA revised the product labeling for Symphostatin. How have these changes changed the use of this medication? They've changed it quite a bit. I tell you, I was not not pleased in June of 2011 seeing that FDA statement. I wasn't pleased at how it got rolled out, but I do agree with the overall message that the highest dose of simvastatin does have more risk of myopathy. We've known that from the FDA for many years now. And we've also had heightened awareness about the drug interaction potential with simvastatin increasing risk of myopathy. So I think that this information, the change in the product insert in June 2011, really has questioned how we intensely we use that particular drug. And it has changed things quite a bit when patients need higher doses of simvastatin 
we have to switch to another option, another higher potency statin. And I th- that's been a challenge, and I think that it has made resulted in a lot of changes, and it's basically more diligent evaluation of dyslipidemia. I think the good in it is that it really has made every clinician, when a patient is on simvastatin, regardless of whether they're on 80 milligrams or a lower dose, it's made clinicians reevaluate therapy, which hopefully will result in patients getting to their target values. So I think there could be some good nested within that challenge. How do you think the availability of generic astorvastatin will affect the treatment of lipid disorders? I think it's going to have a very favorable overall effect in the treatment of lipid disorders because it will represent uh, the highest potency generic option where we currently have simvastatin, but now we can't use the 80 milligram dose. So the maximum dose, assuming no drug interaction with simvastatin is capped at 40 milligrams, which gives about equal potency to atorvastatin 20. So atorvastatin will also have a 40 milligram option and 80 milligram option, which will be more intensive as far as LDL lowering. So I think the impact is going to be, we'll see slowly once that generic is introduced and once it's multi-sourced with multiple generic options available that generic companies that produce atorvastatin, we'll see the price become much more manageable which happens with all generics, but I think we'll see a shift in prescribing towards atorvastatin. It does have fewer drug interactions than simvastatin, which represents, you know, in the past, the highest potency option. It'll be a higher potency option that will be a little bit easier to use in a lot of patients. So I think we'll see a shift in market share towards a generic atorvastatin. Definitely see that. There have been several clinical trials evaluating combination lipid-lowering drug therapies that have been published over the last few years. What are these trials telling us regarding this treatment strategy? What these trials are telling us is the data available with combination lipid-lowering therapy is highly disappointing. It seems as though everything that's been evaluated in a more intense manner long-term, such as you know the addition of azidamide to a statin, the addition of niacin to a statin, the addition of fibric acid derivatives such as phenofibrate with a statin, they've really failed in their ability to demonstrate reduced cardiovascular risk. Not reducing lipoproteins such as LDL or triglycerides or raising HDL. They do that, the combination approaches, but they don't at least currently have the data demonstrating reduced cardiovascular risk. So these combination studies really are giving us a message that these treatment options change our lipoproteins, but we don't know whether they reduce cardiovascular risk. And perhaps the answer is because they don't. So it's been a big problem because we do use combination lipid-lowering drugs, and there still are roles for doing that. in patients maybe with more exaggerated lipid disorders, but in your bread-and-butter patient who's on good statin-based therapy who has LDL clearly at their goal, the data indicate that there probably is no benefit of using a second drug to go a little further and to reduce other lipoproteins, and that's sort of a disappointing message. Um, The good news within just newer data, when we go beyond the combination routes, we have some good safety data for these for drug classes in particular. The heart protection study, which evaluated simvastatin, which again is a generic product as we previously have discussed. There's some great 11-year long-term safety data, which I think even though it doesn't evaluate combination therapy really collectively as a drug class, it really tells us as a pharmacy community that our currently available statin-based regimens and even statin monotherapy really provide not only the long-term benefits, but also long-term safety when used appropriately. Well, thank you, Dr. Sassine, for sharing this important information with us. This concludes this podcast. For additional information about this topic, visit the Educational Initiative web portal at www.cemornings.com.